coming up this hour on The Common Good. We're going to talk coronavirus. We're going to talk workaholism. And then Brene Brown's commencement speech to the University of Texas. It's coming up next on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today on this uh, Thursday afternoon. That's what it is, Thursday afternoon. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com. And get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we are grateful for those of you uh, who do that. You know, Ian, I, I uh, got up today, as I tend to do, and I watched the Today Show. Uh, so the beginning of the Today Show today, it just struck me, and it probably shouldn't have. I don't know what I was expecting but within the first 10 minutes, it was um, the all that's going on in Minneapolis with George Floyd's uh, death and now kind of the protests. And, uh, the, you know, they were standing by burned out buildings and whatever else. And they had Steven Jackson, an NBA player who was friends with George Floyd on. And it was just heartbreaking. And then the next story was that we crossed 100,000 death um milestone. That sounds like not something to call a milestone, but we'll call that a milestone for coronavirus for COVID-19 deaths. And I just turned like the, I hit pause on my TV and I didn't have anything profound other than to say it was so heavy. I it, Those two in combo, like sometimes when you're in the midst of it, you just forget all that's going on. And those two in combo just made me just overwhelmingly sad and just kind of I've stayed that way for for much of the day today. Just really overwhelming stuff, it feels like right now. Well, and I want to first affirm you for your use of milestone. Definition <laughs> Thank is you. A significant event or stage in the life progress development through like of a person, nation, etc. So, yeah, that can also mean really heavy stuff, yeah. really yeah. negative stuff. Uh, again, I probably shouldn't be surprised, but it is interesting to see how polarized these things continue to become like for example it seems inconceivable to a certain part of the internet to be both anti-police brutality systemic racism and looting like you can be against all of those things (laughs) but it very quickly becomes this camp that that camp and again by the way if you're like lumping quote those people in like each parts of that story um that's not a really good sign like you, you can be both against what happened and stand up for the systemic issues that are underlying it and say we still shouldn't be looting targets and setting them on fire. Like, it, I don't know, maybe I'm feeling more nostalgic than I have in, in a while. But like, didn't there used to be a time where people were able to understand that nuance more universally, more comprehensively? It feels like people almost it almost fans the flames yeah. to, to have some sort of opposition even if that isn't the full embodiment of what you believe you know what i mean like that i don't know it it doesn't make any sense to me yeah nuance is certainly uh something that's been lost on our culture and like maybe we used to be just young and naive and maybe it was never was there but yeah it is interesting i i noticed that exact same thing that you said like if you tweeted or posted about looting being a bad thing then you weren't understanding justice and vice versa and it was just like i think you just put it well like can't we uh, can't we have both? And at the New York Post, I think we'll put this up or have already at our Facebook page. Uh, there was an article uh, in which a, a video was basically found of George Floyd talking to in like just kind of holding his camera, I'm assuming, 
speaking for uh, to young people, to particularly young African-American people in his neighborhood. Uh, and it was really inspiring. And, and I think it was inspiring because of also because of what has happened here. Um, uh, he said at the end of it, he said, come on, come on home, man. It's going to be you and God. You're going up or you're going down. And was basically trying to talk about gun control to people in his neighborhood. And it was just, I think why I appreciated watching that was it was such a humanizing thing. Like this guy wasn't just the guy who got, uh, uh, who died on a street in Minneapolis, right? Like I watched an interview with his sister and you're, you're just reminded, and I know this sounds really basic, uh, that was somebody's son and somebody's brother and somebody's mentor and somebody's good friend. That's what I, re- you know, watching Steven Jackson today where they were like apparently really good friends. And so again, the humanizing of it. And that also goes for the hundred thousand COVID deaths right now. Like that number can become really dehumanizing. Uh, and to be reminded, like each of those numbers uh, is a, is a, uh, you know, it's a son, it's a grandson, it's a, it's a grandfather, it's a grandmother. I don't know that the humanizing of both of those, as opposed to, you know, George Floyd or the COVID deaths, they're not just fodder for social media. Like these are real tragic situations of real people's lives cut short. And I don't, I don't know why I felt that so deeply today, but I, I just really did, especially this morning watching that. Well, okay. So you mentioned it and I appreciate you saying it is sort of basic that's baseline stuff right oh these are yep. people made mm-hmm. in the image and likeness of god where do you go from there what what it, it can't just obviously the rhetoric can't stop at yeah george floyd was a person no i get that well yep. on to friday like what what are the next steps in either of those discussions whether it's covid whether it's george floyd or or anything else where you I mean, I think it it has to probably start there. Right. I think we need to see people regardless of what the issue or tragedy of the day is. We need to see people first as image bearers before we see yep. their religion, before we see their sexual orientation, their gen. I mean, all those things image bearer first. And I think when we when that even gets bumped to second or third, we can really start to get things out of whack in some pretty horrific ways. But what is the thing after that, though? What do you do next now? You know, I made a point today uh, to uh, because I struggle with that, right? Like, I don't want to be I'm not the type who necessarily runs to Facebook or Twitter and tweets because this is not how I've treated it. Uh, but what I do did, what I did today was made a point. I hadn't realized I hadn't talked to any of my kids about what was on the news. And so I talked with one of my kids and we talked about um, what was going on up in Minneapolis. And, you know, I don't think I've ever had that conversation with my kids, you know, like, mm. hey, here's uh, here's what goes on in our world sometimes. And, and here's what we should be thinking. And, and um, or around I, I it was more around the George Floyd incident where I had that conversation, but also around the coronavirus. Like, you know, most of my conversations with my kids around the coronavirus has been like, when can I see my friends? Are we going to have school next year? Right. <laughs> All these kinds of things, as opposed to guys uh, understand the loss here, understand the gravity of what's happened. And I, I was challenged myself today uh, to parent a little bit better in this situation in terms of being more open and talking as opposed to like, hey, yeah, you guys go jump on the trampoline. I'm going to watch the news here. I'm going to read this. And so that was one for me. Um, how do you how would you answer that question for yourself? I mean, gosh, how much time do we have? I, there's probably a couple of things and I mentioned it yesterday. I think 
especially for people in the majority context, we, we need to do better at listening and learning. And I think yeah. it's one thing to be an ally. It's another thing to be an advocate. I think we have mm-hmm. probably in some instances, and I think that it's good. I mean, I did it myself. I wrote a prayer of lament. I great. tweeted and posted a couple of things that probably had more to do with my processing, though. And that's fine. And a lot of people have written some really profound things. And I really hope that some people are seeing things or at least giving pause in a new way. But that isn't necessarily advocacy. It's good to say, mm-hmm. like you were saying, yeah, I affirm the the sacred dignity of being an image bearer. And then, wow, I, you know, I tweeted something out or I put that's maybe even good too, maybe not. But to, to become an advocate, I'll, I'll post a couple of links to the Facebook page too. There's been a, a number of things. One, one in particular, 75 things white people can do for racial justice. There's another one about uh, for our white friends desiring to be allies. There's some resources that are I think really, really timely and offer a much better perspective than the one that I have as a white Caucasian man in the Midwest. And that that's kind of my posture. Again, ironically, on a show that we're, you and I are both talking, I think I know. you need to learn to do a lot more listening. <laughs> that's well put, man. And so, again, uh, it is a time uh, for some lament in, in everything from the 100,000 barrier of the COVID-19 to what's going on up in Minneapolis uh, don't just blow past that, but take time to reflect as well. Uh, coming up next, yesterday, uh, we discussed a little bit about workaholism, and Paul Tripp wrote about that. We're going to discuss his blog post about workaholism and Christianity. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. As always, find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com. And as always, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. We do appreciate that. It does help us. We're grateful for those of you who listen via podcast. Uh, before we jump into this next blog post, uh, let me remind you of something that we're excited about here at the station, because during this coronavirus pandemic, we know uh, that over the past couple months, many businesses have unfortunately had to close their doors or reduce their hours. But we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, Go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. It's all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form, uh, and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. It's totally free. There's no catch. So today, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. When you hear that there's no catch, does it make you think there's a catch? You know, sometimes people think there's a catch to these. Like, what am I signing up for? What am I actually signing up for? So no, it's just no a funny catch. thing. I don't feel like I would ever say that in a conversation. Like, hey, um, I'll I'll cover lunch for us. No catch. No, like, <laughs> no yeah, pressure. I, I wasn't assuming a catch. My goodness. <laughs> it probably says more to do with normal advertising than right than anything yeah, else. But. Probably. You're probably right. So yesterday during the show, uh, we talked a little bit at near the end of the show about workaholism and uh as uh, as uh, coincidentally, if you will, Paul Tripp wrote just yesterday, too many Christian workaholics on his uh, blog, paultripp.com. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what he had to say here? Yeah, if you're not familiar, I'm a I'm a pretty big fan of Paul Tripp. I don't love everything he does, mm-hmm. but I, I think he's got 
a finger on the pulse of some pretty some pretty incredible uh, insight in terms of pastoral wisdom and parenting. He's got a, a couple of great segments that I've used in sermons before. Either way, I like this topic a lot, and I, I like what he has to say here. He says, why are there so many workaholics in the church? Why are so many Christians successful in their career at the expense of their spouse and children? Why do we struggle to find time for ministry, prayer, and scripture reading, but spend way too much time in our office or our work inbox? You could argue that this is a priority problem where we list career above God and family. I wouldn't disagree. You could propose that we have a scheduling problem and revising our daily routine and setting up restrictions would provide a solution that certainly would be helpful. But I don't think it goes far enough. We have to admit that we have an identity problem that results in wrong priorities and unbalanced schedules. We have an identity problem because we forget who God is, who we are, and what we have been given in Christ by grace. And then he quotes Second Peter For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. When we suffer from an identity problem, we look horizontally for what we already have been given vertically. Here's the application to today's topic. Because work is such a significant dimension of our lives, it becomes very tempting to look for our identity in that space. When you look to work for your identity, you will find it very hard to resist its challenges, demands, and promises of reward. There are three enticing identities that we can discover in our work. And then he lists pretty briefly, but pretty profoundly, I think, some of those uh, enticements. Yeah. And so you've you've said that you struggle at times with workaholism or uh, this. Do you think he's nailing it here? Is it an identity issue primarily? I think most everything we do is an identity issue, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would certainly include this in it. And I think it asks the deeper, more philosophical existential question where, you know, I'm obviously in favor of right priorities and good scheduling and time management. Also things I've not been great at. So it's, it's easy to see them kind of working hand in hand, but I think simply addressing our time management and organization doesn't really get to the root of like why we keep going back to those same wells over and over again. And uh, I haven't, yeah, I think, I think that he's spot on. Yeah, I think. Okay. Uh, before getting to his list of three, that's a that's an interesting statement you made. I think everything's an identity issue. I would agree with you, but some people might be like, well, that's kind of confusing. Uh, what did you exactly mean by that? Well, a lot, I mean, a lot of what even what he was listing here in Second Peter, which is not necessarily the verse that I would go to first, but what, you know, what I'll often say is that in Christ, our identity is received, not achieved. And the, the older that I get and the more that I talk to, I mean, honestly, spiritual directors and therapists and people that I think understand both soul and psyche pretty well, a lot of what we do, whether we're conscious of it or not, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to a perpetual workaholism to try and impress their dad or because they never felt loved by their mom or because of a broken mm-hmm. relationship. All that kind of plays into it, but all of that comes back to identity, though. So I think most every addiction which I would actually probably put workaholism under that umbrella as well. I think a lot of our, I mean, obviously there are chronic things or neurological things. So I'm not saying that, you know, every chemical imbalance is a result of some identity issue, but I do think identity is at the core of a lot, if not all the errors that we are culpable in enacting. And I think, to fail to go that deep, which is why I think the work of spiritual directors and therapists is so important is because that's a lot of you know what good ones are trained to do is not just, well, let's modify this behavior. That's still good. If, if you're engaging in really toxic, terrible behavior, you need someone to help you stop doing that. But I think until you actually get to the underlying issues of why was that behavior so enticing in the first place, 
And that all ties in with identity. Hmm. So Tripp says, there are three enticing identities that we can discover from our work. Let me just run through these three. He says, number one, identity in achievement and success. I am what I've accomplished. A trail of achievement seems to make a statement about who you are and what you can do. But the buzz of today's success will fade and you'll need the next success to keep you going and another success to follow it. Without realizing it, success will have morphed from something you enjoyed to something you cannot live without. Yeah. Uh, Number two, identity and power and control. I'm in control. Therefore, I am in a world where most of us have a variety of people who tell us what to do every day. It is intoxicating to be the person in power, but people who have attached their identity to success and using it to get it always uh, leave a trail of personal and spiritual carnage behind them. And number three, identity and affluence and possessions. I am the size of the pile of stuff I've accumulated. Uh, because we're physical people living in a physical world and because God has given us the capacity to recognize and enjoy beauty. It's tempting to define the good life as one filled with all beautiful things. I have those three are great. I think I resonate most with that top one. If, and when I struggle with this, uh, it's that people pleasing side, right? Identity and achievement and success. People looking at me going, Oh, look what you've done and kind of getting, uh, you know, the good feelings from that, which one of these three did you, did you most resonate with? Well, and you kind of touched on it. It's, I probably would add a fourth one to say identity in what people say about me. Right. And which Ooh, is yep. sort of in line with what you were drawing from, but that isn't really what number one, I don't think was, was saying you went to the people aspect of it. Right. But yep. I think some people are simply driven by the success and achievement itself where for you, and you've mentioned this before, the underlying people pleasing component of it, I think it's the same. The same principle applies, right? If it's for sure. found in success, you need to keep finding new successes. If it's found in what people say about you, well, then every compliment will needs another one. It's an insatiable. Well, now I have to go find the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And yep. unfortunately, I think a lot of a lot of pastors probably struggle with that one. Yep, he closes with this way, and you will be liberated from. He says you'll learn to rest in your lack of control, knowing that by grace you've been adopted by the Father who has authority over everything for his glory and your good. And you'll be liberated from continually working to accumulate more of what you hope will give you pleasure because you are increasingly satisfied in Christ. And then he just signs his blog, Paul Tripp. (laughs) So uh, really well written. A lot of people out there struggle with workaholism, workaholics. So if that's you, we'd encourage you to give this a read. It's up on our Facebook page, the common good radio show coming up next. Uh, it's graduation time of year, even though it looks different this year, a lot of virtual graduation ceremonies going on. And with that comes virtual commencement speeches. We're going to listen to some, uh, part of one of those coming up next year on the common good AM 1160 hope for your life. Welcome back to the common good AM 1160 hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this beautiful Thursday. Uh, afternoon. In fact, after the show is done, Ian, you want to know what I'm going to do? I'm going to mow my lawn and I'm, it's going to be the highlight of my day. <laughs> I can't wait. Can't wait. can't wait to hear about it. <laughs> you will. I'll give you a report tomorrow, but I have no doubt that you will. As long as this rain holds off, we'll be good to go. <laughs> so it's commencement time of year. It's graduation time. It'd be so weird to graduate right now. I feel so bad for college grads and high school grads having to do it over zoom, but uh, you know, it is what it is right now. And, but with yeah. those, uh, are coming commencement speeches. And I just found myself last night just watching a bunch of them. And one of them uh, that happened just within the last day or two was Brene Brown uh, giving the commencement speech to the University of Texas graduates, University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and I'd encourage you out there, you could Google it, Brene Brown, University of Texas 
Uh, it's like 25 minutes long, and it was great. Uh, but I've got like uh, three minutes for us to listen to. So let's listen to Brene Brown talking to the graduates from University of Texas, and then we'll respond to it. I've never seen a single person who's built a life, a family, or a career that did not have to scratch their way up from a fall and begin again a hundred times. What starts here changes the world, but it will not be on your terms and it will not be on your timeline. The world will not ready itself for our plans. What starts here will change the world, but it'll take your commitment to get back up and begin again the exact same number of times you fall, trip, or get pushed down. So what's the key to getting back up and beginning again? Vulnerability. Now, y'all, y'all didn't think I was going to get through this whole thing without mentioning vulnerability, right? Come on. You knew it was coming. Getting back up and beginning again are risky. They both require courage and curiosity. And courage and curiosity are born of vulnerability. Are you willing to show up and be all in when you don't know how it's going to end? The definition of vulnerability is simple. It's uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. We're raised to believe that vulnerability is weakness, but that's the greatest myth of all. It is not. It is actually the most accurate way to measure courage. We've asked tens of thousands of people around the world, from special forces soldiers to professional athletes to students and teachers, give me a single example, one example of courage in your life or in the life of someone else that did not require vulnerability, a single example of courage that did not require uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. No one can. One day I found myself on base, a military base in the Midwest, talking to troops. I asked this question, give me an example of courage that didn't require vulnerability. There was silence. People buried their, their, their head in their hands. And finally, one young man stood up and said, three tours, ma'am. There is no courage without vulnerability. A week later, I was with the Seattle Seahawks, asked them the same question. No not on the field or off. There is no courage without vulnerability. If you can't manage, own, and lean into your vulnerability, you can't change the world. To get back up from a fall, to get back up from a setback, to get back up from what we're in right now, you have to acknowledge you're down, that you've fallen, failed, made a mistake. You have to be brave enough to acknowledge that you're hurting, that you're sad, disappointed, grieving, feeling shame, whatever feeling you're in, you have to own it. You cannot, we cannot begin again when we're dragging, when we're dragging unspoken and unexplored emotions behind us. We have to be brave and curious and to dig into the feelings of a fall. And that's hard when you're face down. All right, Ian, you've spoken of Brene Brown before. Wondering uh, if you hadn't heard it before, what did you think about what she had to say there to the graduates at the University of Texas? I mean, it's kind of classic Brene, and I am not complaining. I think I think <laughs> she's great. I, I don't know if you've seen her Netflix special. Have we talked about that on the show? No, I didn't even know there was one. Yeah, it's probably a year old now. That's wonderful. It's like a TED Talk meets comedy special where actually, you know, she's had a a bunch of TED Talk success that kind of blew up, but those are such short time frames that in the format of a special, she can like really get into the weeds of some of these stories. So even stories that I knew about already, 
she kind of you know was able to elaborate on. She's a great storyteller. I love, I just love the stuff that she, I feel like so much of what she's saying is so weirdly timely right yeah. now. Like one of the things that I've found in adulthood, and maybe you found this to be true. You know, I, I don't think anyone likes failure. And right. I feel like a lot of commencement speeches are all about like, you're going to succeed, reach for the stars. You can do it. And for her to kind of take the approach, like, Hey man, um, failure is actually a much better teacher than successes. And we spend so much of our time, running from it that I think we shortchange ourselves by like avoiding any struggle or any pushback and to couch all of that in vulnerability, you know, she makes the case and I've used clips and sermons before where she, she talks about vulnerability being the greatest act of courage that we know, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is unique. We don't often, we don't often talk about like I, she's got a book called the gifts of imperfection. She said, authenticity is a collection of choices that we have to make every day. It's about the choice to show up and be real, the choice to be honest, the choice to let our true selves be seen, which particularly in a digital age right now where everything's online, I feel like this is especially hard to do to really be our, our true selves. And I think she just speaks about it in such a helpful way. And I'm glad that young people are getting a chance to sort of learn from her perspective. Yeah, she if, if you watch the whole thing, she begins by telling her story of being obsessed with going to University of Texas. Uh, she was accepted and then uh, she already had a room like she had a, a dorm assignment and everything. And then her dad made some foolish choices and they lost all their money mm. uh, and she couldn't go. And she talked for a while to them about uh, kind of the bad life choices she made coming out of that from her anger running away. Um, and it is I think so often we try to avoid failure at all costs because how, what will we look sure. like if we fail? What are we doing? Her whole point was. Uh, you know, you get all you get told as college graduates, you're going to change the world. You're going to change the world. And she said, you can't change the world until you a learn how to deal with failure. But B, you're vulnerable enough to have the courage. And that was it. And you just mentioned it. Uh, linking vulnerability and courage that, that you've got to kind of open yourself up to be able to make courageous moves and to risk failure. Right. I think is it sounds really good in a commencement speech. But, man, that's a really hard way to live your life. Yeah, I, I think Christians are just as bad at this as anyone for a lot of the same reasons that you had mentioned even earlier with the workaholism segment that we did. I think it's so easy for us to hide behind our accomplishments. And when we're not achieving those accomplishments, it makes sense for us to then run from vulnerability because owning up to the parts that we feel like we've failed or and sometimes even worse, let other people down. I just think. Like she's got a way of modeling the kind of vulnerability she talks about. Like she, I don't know if that's given her too much credit, but like, it feels like so much of what is lost, I think in this vulnerability conversation is that often the people talking about it don't seem like they're ever vulnerable. You're like, Oh <laughs> yeah. Um, you, it's easy for you to say you're on stage with a microphone. I just feel like she, she models it and, owns up to stuff and doesn't always make herself the hero. Like she, she does that. I think as as best you can from a stage with a microphone as anybody. And that's part of what I think makes it so compelling. Yeah. I think just to be, it's a helpful reminder that when you see people up front with microphones or, uh, you know, uh, the head of organization, something of prominence to remember that they have failed along the way too. <laughs> right. Like right. Everybody has failed along the way. And the question that she posed to them, and I think is a great question, not just for college graduates, but for all of us 
is how are you going to deal with failure? And right. uh, are you vulnerable enough? Do you have the courage enough to deal with failure and to be open or will failure wreck you? It's really good. I want to encourage you to go to our Facebook page and listen to the whole thing. Like I said, it's like 25 minutes long, uh, but really well worth your time. And uh, really impressive on her part, by the way, to be able to sit at a desk looking into a camera <laughs> and just deliver it. <laughs> really impressive. So you should you should preach like that. Give that a exactly, shot. Exactly. Exactly. So you can find that at our Facebook page. Uh, well, coming up next, we're going to talk about conversation and what are some words that help turn conversations around. That's coming up next year on the uh, Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, as a reminder, find all the stories, uh, the commencement speech we were just talking about, all the things we discuss on the show. You can find them on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Also at Twitter and Instagram, at Common Good Talk. And uh, podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, at a website called getpocket.com. Uh, would you be willing, and then it says words to turn a conversation around and those to avoid. I found this a, to be a fascinating article. Before we discuss it, uh, Ian, why don't you tell us a little bit about Thrivent? Yeah, big fans of Thrivent. If you're not familiar, I'd encourage you to peruse Thrivent.com. They're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for more than 100 years, which I feel like is more impressive than I realized. Not a lot of things are around for 100 years. Either way... Yeah. Uh, incredible organization. I've been a Thrivent member for like seven or eight years. You can see not only what they offer for individuals, but there's a lot of resources and training. And at the very least, I think you'll be impressed if you've never checked them out. Also, though, if you're looking for a career change, which I know a lot of people right now in particular are considering, you can mosey on over to Thrivent.com slash careers. And don't worry, I don't think Big Brother is watching. You can just check it out willy-nilly and uh, see if there's anything there that sort of tickles your proverbial fancy. Plus, you don't even need a background in finance. You just need to like coming alongside people, helping people, working with a cool organization. And uh, I would highly encourage you to do that. So Thrivent.com slash careers is where to go. Uh, So uh, actually at The Guardian here, it says this, would you be willing words to turn a conversation around and those to avoid And it says, choose your words carefully and you could get someone to change their mind or see you in a new light. So it's Hmm. it's going to give us some phrases and some words to use and not use. And I just found this fascinating. You and I both talk for a living, um, hopefully amongst other things. But a lot of what we do is talking. Surprisingly enough, (laughs) a lot of what we do is talking. Uh, And so the article begins this way. It's not what you say is how you say it, isn't it? According to language analyst, we may have this wrong. Uh, Elizabeth Stokey says we are pushed and pulled around by language far more than we realize. Her and her colleagues have analyzed thousands of hours of recorded conversations from customer services to uh, mediation hotlines and police crisis negotiation. They discovered that certain words or phrases have the power to change the course of a conversation. Hmm. Some of these may be surprising and go against what we have been taught. Uh, but from conversation analysts, uh, such as Stoko to FBI negotiators and communication coaches, we're learning which words are likely to placate, placate or persuade us. And they're going to give us some of the biggest do's uh, and don'ts. I find this really interesting to you, just that there's certain, literally they found specific words that when used in a conversation help and those that don't help. I find this pretty fascinating. Yeah, I'm just mostly interested in who Stoko is. 
I think I mentioned her, but said her name incorrectly at the beginning. She is the professor of social interaction at Lowborough University. Oh, go. I got gotcha. you. Okay. You I'm, I'm tracking again. I missed that. There I'm sorry. Go. So let's see how we do this. Let's just read these down. Here are some of the biggest do's and don'ts. I'll do the do use these words, and I'll let you go negative with the don't use these words. How about we do it that way? You're too kind. The first one is do use this, willing. Use the word willing. One of the first words Stoko came across that seemed to have a magical effect on people was willing. It started with looking at mediation uh, telephone calls, she explains. That is, calls to or from a mediation center where the aim was to persuade people to engage with mediation to resolve their conflicts. When they're in a dispute, people usually want a lawyer or the police. They don't really want mediation. She found that when the phrase by the mediator was used, would you be willing to come for a meeting? As soon as the word willing was uttered, people would say, oh, yes, definitely. They would actually interrupt the sentence and agree. Sometimes they work, but willing was the one that got people to agree more rapidly and with more uh, enthusiasm. So she says, deploy that word when you've already been, been met with some resistance. I know it's not your first choice, but would you be willing to meet on Friday? The uh-huh. word willing, she's called magical. Who who to thunk it? In our first no. don't, don't use swear words. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Which one? Uh, yeah, right. It says don't use the word just. In 2015, Ellen Liance, a former Google executive, wrote a LinkedIn blog about the way men and women use the word just. In the blog, which went viral, she claimed that women use it far more than men. It often hit me that there was something about the word I didn't like. It was a permission word, a warm-up to a request word, an apology for interrupting, a shy knocking on the door before asking, can I get something I need from you? Leance asked her coworkers to have a moratorium on the word just, banning it from their communication. She claimed that the difference in how confident people felt was noticeable after just a few weeks. Her evidence wasn't scientific, but even so, just is one of those words that has a habit of creeping into our emails and spoken conversations. Fine if you're trying to be placatory, placatory, but if you (laughs) want to have more authority, lose the word just. So then it says what to say. Try your own experiment over the next week. Read your emails back before you send them and count the number of times that I just wanted to or could I just appear. Edit them out and see the difference in tone. Interesting. Are you a... uh, are you a just user? I was just going to tell you in emails, I say just all the time. Do you really? <laughs> I've you even really? noticed it. And then I read this and I was like, oh. <laughs> oh boy. Do you use it in prayer as well? Nah, not as much. But I have heard the just in prayers. But in emails, I'll often make, hey, I just wanted to take take a minute. I just wanted, you know, it's almost like apologizing. It's, it's it is, isn't it? That's uh, That's pretty interesting. Next one to use is speak instead of talk. The word talk seems to make a lot of people resistant to conversation. Uh, Negotiators who use phrases such as I'm here to talk met with more resistance. Persons in crisis would often respond with something. I don't want to talk. When the verb was speak, however, persons in crisis were more likely to open up the conversation and be far more informational. So we got to get through these, but I'll just say. They said, can I speak to you about this? Uses what you should say rather than can we talk? Well, here's one that's going to make people upset. Don't use. How are you? Stoko mm-hmm. uses her research to work with groups on improving their communication, including groups of business to business cold callers. One of the main messages of that work was to tell people to stop building rapport. She says sales 
Uh, salespeople are trained to do small talk at the beginning of calls, but we were never able to show with our research that it doesn't work. Not only is there no evidence of reciprocal rapport building, but also you're more likely to irritate the other person and extend the length of the call. It's not so much that the how are you is rude, but rather that it's false. In real life, no one asks, how are you today in that mm-hmm. cold call way if they know the person genuinely and want to know the answer. So it says what to say the next time you have to speak to someone you don't know. Don't be overly friendly. Stick to being polite. Hmm. Uh, do use the word some instead of any. Oh. Anything else I can do for you sounds perfectly reasonable. Uh, but uh, the conversation analyst in this article looked at how doctors use the words any and some in their final interactions with patients. They found, is there something else I can do for you today? Elicited a much better response than is there anything else? And that's because the word any tends to be tends to meet with negative responses yep. Uh, yep. versus some is I'm offering to do something for you. Fascinating. Yep. That one totally makes sense to me. It says don't use yes, but do use. It seems like uh, do use. Hello. That's, that one seems <laughs> obvious. <laughs> and then that's how it ends. So she says what, the hello one, use it when you want to resist getting into a confrontation. You have to be careful not to sound too passive aggressive. But just one friendly word in a bright tone can delete the challenge of the conversation. Interesting. Sprite does it mean like when I look at my kids when they're not listening to me and just go, hello. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go full Jerry Lewis on them. Exactly. So hopefully you guys find that interesting. Find it at our Facebook page. I found that interesting and realize some things about the way that I talk and the way I write emails. So uh, take a look at it, at it at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next. Uh, President Trump has taken aim at Twitter and other social media platforms. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, President Trump wants to sign an executive order about social media platforms. And then we're going to hear John Krasinski's commencement speech at Brown University. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today on this sunny Thursday afternoon. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Online, 1160hope.com. You can find our podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we do appreciate those of you uh, who do that. I do know Thursday's normally date night for you, but everything got changed. What, what are you doing tonight? Anything fun or is it just every day is the same now? <laughs> no, we moved date night to Saturday. Oh, you told me that last week. That's right. Which is which is probably I think it's just a better fit with our new rhythm. I'm going to Zoom with my buddy Nate, who we've had on the show, actually, Nate of Beer and Him Chicago. Yes. Okay. Will there be a zooming of beer and hymns at some point along the way here, do you think? I cannot confirm or deny. We've certainly had a conversation. It's really, really hard to sync up music from various sites. There's ways to do it, but it's really, really complicated, apparently. Every time people do things musically over Zoom, I think it's the most amazing thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It blows my mind. I I mean, I'm already blown away by creative people, but I feel like this has been a, a whole new level of innovation and creativity that I didn't even know was possible. Like when I'm on Zoom meetings and doing stuff, I'm like, I don't even know where I'm supposed to be looking right now. And these people are like just editing full songs and bands together. It's crazy. It's crazy. So uh, all over the news today was uh, President Trump was is talking about an executive order 
uh, that deals with social media platforms. Specifically, he is taking aim at Twitter because for the first time, and there's nobody really who tweets more than President Trump, but for the first time the other day, uh, he said something. I think it was about mail-in ballots, uh, and they put up uh, kind of a fact check thing on him. I think it kind of works like kind of click here to to kind of see the facts or something like that. Uh, and needless to say, he was not very excited about that. Uh, and so he came out today and said, uh, today is the day. It's a big day for social media and fairness. He tweeted on Thursday uh, that he expected to issue an executive order aimed at big tech firms. Later in the day, Wednesday, President Trump said that it's, quote, so ridiculous for Twitter to make the case that mail-in ballots aren't subject to fraud. Uh, And interestingly, he did this over Twitter. White House officials said Wednesday that the president would sign an executive order targeting the social media uh, companies, but didn't elaborate on the details. Earlier Wednesday, he threatened to, quote, strongly regulate social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook or, quote, close them down tweeting that Republicans feel that the companies are silencing conservative voices. Uh, In a follow-up tweet, he said they must, quote, clean up your act now. Uh, And so uh, the president's threats, we read here, came after Twitter for the first time, as we said, added a fact-check label to a pair of his tweets uh, about making what they said were unsubstantiated claims that mail-in ballots will lead to voter fraud. Uh, And so... Twitter and Facebook, Ian, I'm curious if you have anything to say about what Donald Trump has said, what President Trump has said, that's fine. But do you think that they should be in the business of regulating the speech that's going on? uh, Or is this more of a First Amendment issue? What do you think their role is in social media on these social media platforms? Gosh, that's such a big question. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know. Social media... (laughs) I mean, it, I think part of what frustrates me a little bit is that we seem to have relinquished our own capacity or responsibility for doing the hard work and research on our own. That if somebody isn't outright telling us, like if this was in face-to-face communication, there's not a bubble over your head that says like, that wasn't true, that was a lie. Like it feels a little bit, in fact, it's interesting, you know, we have a think tank, a private group of uh, friends that will share content or articles or ideas that kind of help us generate stories for the week. And a couple of friends had posted, which I think I mentioned on the show that um, NASA had potentially found like a parallel universe. And then I got a notification from Facebook today that said partly false information in your group. And so (laughs) then I posted it in the group kind of like as a ha ha ha. Um, But then a couple of friends weighed in. So my buddy Gary said, I feel like social media companies are in a no win situation. Facebook specifically got crucified for allowing all the disinformation during the 2016 campaign. They were called before the House to testify over it. I can't imagine trying to figure out where to draw the line and having the responsibility of holding the keys to quote the truth. And then my buddy Justin commented on that. And I, I thought what he said was interesting. He said, I don't expect television networks or phone companies to be arbiters of truth. I expect them to be platforms for public interaction and cultural exchange. Companies should disavow any ideas that they have authority or responsibility to help the public receive or interact with, quote, valid information. Hmm. So he he came out pretty strong. and I think he makes a really solid point there. I'm wondering if you think he's right on or if you would add a caveat for people with 
particularly large platforms like the president or, or where, where, yeah, where do you land in all that? I'm with you that it's a no win situation. Uh, it really feels like my first inclination when I knew we were going to talk about this was, uh, Hey people, you need to do a better job checking the facts out, chasing them down on your own. Um, and that that's not, you know, like, it's not like Twitter or Facebook are going to be unbiased in this. They're going to have a slant. And like you said, uh, what do they, how much of this are they regulating? How much of this are they checking? Um, at the same time, we see, we saw in, uh, even in the 2016 election that uh, some people think uh, that how much of our election was swayed by false information on these social media platforms uh, and nefarious actions. And so you are like Jack Dorsey, he's the Twitter, uh, he's Twitter CEO. Uh, he responded, uh, there is someone ultimately accountable for our actions as a company, and that's me. Uh, we'll continue to point out incorrect or disputed information about elections globally, and we will admit to and own any mistakes we make. Uh, so he's kind of saying, we want this, we want to make sure that elections are fair. Uh, but then he's getting killed on the other side. They're going, wait, but you're not going to say anything when President Trump put up stuff this week about Joe Scarborough and this conspiracy theory about a murder uh, or whatever else. And people are on both sides are going crazy. It is kind of a no win situation. And Mark Zuckerberg even took a shot at at um, uh, at Jack Dorsey of Twitter. Zuckerberg, in an interview, said we at Facebook are not going to be, quote, arbiters of the truth. Uh, which I found to be a really interesting line that he used there. So I don't, I don't really know what the best answer here is because uh, we do know that there are a lot of people who believe everything they read on the internet, <laughs> and so is that on them or, or do we want some somebody helping make sure that that at least what's going on in these huge social me- media platforms is as reliable as possible? Uh, Man, I don't have a great answer, but but it does seem to be getting worse, doesn't it? The, the, the sharing of false information seems to be getting worse, not better. Uh, I don't know that it's getting worse. I just think it's getting wider. I think before people had platforms like this, I think people were just as inclined to share false information with whatever their circle or sphere was. I don't I don't know that I think it's gotten. I just think people's reaches have gotten farther and that's worth considering which is part of why i asked the question is this something is there a worthy consideration for like okay but when once you get to one million followers or whatever is there an additional responsibility that somebody somewhere has and i know that no organization can be unbiased but right. if it's like out if it's downright untrue and dangerous is there some responsibility to say hey this actually isn't true i mean that's obviously tricky territory that i don't I could see that getting into some dangerous waters, yeah. but I don't, I don't know. I, it, I'd like to say that I, I have enough faith and confidence for the collective humanity to say to kind of self police, you know, someone's agreed posting or tweeting and say, Hey, uh, that's actually not true. But I've also seen it not play out that way. Or even, you know, among friends where someone said, Hey, that, you know, that thing you shared, here's like three resources to show that's not true. And then mm-hmm. the person's response was, well, I still think the meme is funny. So I'm going to leave it up. So like, <laughs> you know, even outright staring the facts in the face, sometimes people are still more inclined to say, well, okay, even if it's a total lie, it's a funny picture and I'm going to keep it up. To me, that that's dangerous for different reasons. Absolutely. So we'd love to know what you have to say. Uh, you could do that on our, ironically, our Facebook page or our Twitter page. You can mm-hmm. do it in either spot. Uh, do you think uh, that these should just be unregulated places or 
Uh, should there be arbiters of truth, fact checkers, if you will? Uh, we would love to hear your response to that. Well, coming up next, uh, as we said in the first hour, it's graduation time of year. And so we're going to listen to a part of a commencement speech done by John Krasinski, better known as Jim from The Office, uh, to the class of 2019 at Brown University. That's coming up next here on the co- uh, Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. As we said in the first segment, or the first hour of the show, it's graduation time. And even though it's really weird graduations happening over Zoom uh, and not being able to do it like we traditionally did uh, outside and in person, uh, it still doesn't stop the ceremonies from happening. And, And with the commencement ceremonies come commencement speeches. Uh, in the first hour, if you didn't hear it, we played part of one by Brene Brown to the University of Texas. And then while searching that out, I found one from last year from John Krasinski, Jim from the office, uh, to his alma mater at Brown University. So I'm going to play some of that here in a second. But before we do that, uh, we love our partnership here at The Common Good with Thrivent. So, Ian, why don't you tell us a little more about Thrivent? Yeah, a couple of things you should know. One, they have a website. Just go to www dot thrivent dot com click go or whatever your browser requires of you and that'll bring you to a website where you can learn more about thrivent and uh they're a fortune 500 non-for-profit been around for more than 100 years i've been a thrivent member for like seven or eight years if you have questions you can certainly ask me but another thing that's cool about them is uh they have a lot of career opportunities i know a lot of people are maybe looking to change careers you can go to thrivent.com slash careers if you want Plus, they've been hosting and posting all sorts of wonderful, helpful resources, particularly curated for this pandemic, a time of quarantine, all, everything from homeschooling at home to how do you lead during crisis and everything in between. So check out their Facebook page. We've posted a bunch of their stuff on our Facebook page, but we're super, super grateful for them. And I can't encourage you enough to check out Thriving.com. So again, John Krasinski, uh, better known as I said, Jim from the office. And what I to set this up, he is a graduate class of 2001, I think he said, of Brown University. And now he came back. He came back last year, 2019, to speak. And what I love about it is he's just like, how am I here? And I often wondered if I ever got to speak at like Wheaton's graduation. I'd be like, how did this ever happen? Yeah, right. <laughs> and that's what he says. But I want you to hear a lot of it's hilarious. So it's 15, 16 minutes long. So you can watch the whole thing at our Facebook page. But uh, I want to play like the last four minutes of it where he gets a little more serious with the graduating class from Brown University. So this is going to be about four minutes, and then Ian and I will talk about it. It's John Krasinski speaking to the class at Brown University. You know, people often ask me how I got into acting. The truth is, I didn't get into acting. I got into everything. Believe it or not, when I got to Brown, I really hadn't listened to any music that wasn't on the radio, seen any movie that wasn't in the multiplex. One day I asked a small group of friends to each give me one of their favorite movies, favorite albums, and they did. Every single week. For four years. Yeah. Cry. Okay. I'm back. It was the experience of my life. One of the most mind-blowing, mind-expanding experiences, and no drugs were necessary. (laughs) It was without a doubt the beginning of everything. For the next four years, I wanted to be a part of it all. I formed a new way of thinking, a new way of executing those thoughts. I leapt out of my comfort zone, then stayed there, and then leapt again. I experienced firsthand the powerful shift in doing something out of love rather than out of necessity. I learned what it meant to believe. I took chances. 
I failed. And I took more chances. So yes, in the classroom, I received one of the greatest educations one can possibly get. True. But the piece of paper I got at graduation also represents that education. The piece of paper I got not only says where I was educated, but who I was educated with. And it declares that I am a member of that community of people to be relied upon to take risks, provoke thought, and to be committed participants in this world. The piece of paper I got represented every facet of my experience. And the piece of paper I got is the exact same piece of paper you're going to get tomorrow. The piece of paper I got, I live my life every single day by. Because when looking at this sense of nervous that you're feeling now, ask yourself, what's it based in? Is it based in the unknown? Because my question to you is, up until now, how else, how else have you approached each new tomorrow? And if your nerves are based in fear of failure, well, my question is, up until now, how have you defined success? Because in this community, without the presence of financial gain, isn't success simply defined as you're just being onto something? Taking an idea farther that it had never been before? Why does it ever need to change? It doesn't. Or if your nerves are based on something bigger, a fear of something bigger, the world at large. Well, to that I do say, yes, it's true, they're right. The future does indeed belong to you. But the abstract weight of responsibility to change it overnight very much does not. Real change is organic. You're, the only responsibility you all have is to hold fast to everything that you have lived right here. To not conform. To realize that when you're out there, you've done all this before. Right in here. Remember fondly the discomfort you felt when you were asked to push yourself farther than you were ever sure you could go. And the wash of elation when you finally got there. Remember to be scared. You've been scared before. You'll be scared again. Find more of your people. Lean all the way in. Take chances. Fail big and take chances again. Listen to music. Remember to believe in something. And fall in love as many times as it takes. And remember, before you do something special, just do something. The truth can almost seem too simple. But the simple truth is, the program you ran here is the same program. Just run it again. And again. And again. That's what I know. Thank you to this class to this institution is my honor. Thank you. All right, Ian, what'd you think? John Krasinski, what'd you think about that? I mean, he's just likable, right, in general. Um, did you know that going into this, when you before you saw this video, were you aware of some of his background? I wasn't at all. I didn't know at all, and that's why it was kind of fun to watch. It kind of kept my attention, keeping going. I didn't know of him until the office, and uh, knowing that uh, I don't think it was part of this. I think it was earlier where he says he came in mid-year, his freshman year, and so he didn't know anybody. He was going to try out for the basketball team, and then he realized that would be a bad idea, uh, but then got into this acting group, and he says it changed his, li- his life. It was really uh, kind of an impressive story of the importance of friendship and community, even at a place like Brown University, like a college. Well, in this one, you know, we did a uh, Brene Brown segment a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. This one feels a little more like classic quintessential commencement speech, like don't be afraid of the unknowns, take risks. 
which again is I always have like a bit of a love hate relationship with those types of speeches, even though I, I do really like I do like John Krasinski, at least based on what I know. I don't know him, but there, <laughs> there sometimes is it's tricky, right? Because if it's someone who's already successful, well, their risks paid off, but not everyone's risks pay off in the same way. It's the same with like, you know, when you and I go to big, massive church leadership conferences and the guy in the middle of the 60,000 person arena is like, it's worth the risk. You're like, easy for you to say, like you, (laughs) you've arrived, you know? So it's always, it's always tricky to me to balance that. And it's the age and stage that your audience is at is like super susceptible to that. But I think it, I think it is, it's, I think it's why you and I, you know, so many years out of commencement still find some of these things inspiring because sometimes in adulthood, you can forget to take risks. And right. you get really, really comfortable in, well, I mean, I got my 401k, my mortgage, and I can't, you know, I don't want to rock the boat at all. I don't want to, you know, maybe maybe sometimes even remembering to how fiery you were when you were graduating and stuff that you wanted to go after. And again, when you like bring your faith into this conversation, it sheds a lot of light, right? Like it's it's not just about risk for risk's sake. It's about yeah. listening to God's leading, leaning into that, taking risks that, you know, you're you feel like. God has planted in your heart. So that, that I certainly think helps mm, kind of elaborate a little bit on that topic, uh, which I, I find really helpful, but overall I, I, I like Krasinski and I think, I think he's a good, I think he's a good speaker. Yeah. And I, what I really appreciated in his talk was uh, this curiosity that he had in college. He said, I love the education I got, but he said, I was constantly asking other students, who should I be listening to? What should I be reading? What band should I listen to? And he yeah. said he just got all of this wealth of knowledge, uh, kind of this education, even apart from the education. That's a lot of how I look back at college. Like I learned so much in the classroom, but I also learned so much being on my own and getting to know new people. Uh, and it was great. I, I'd encourage you all out there. Listen to these two commencement speeches we put up there, but then go on a YouTube deep dive and just start listening to commencement speeches. They're really encouraging and inspiring. Uh, and I kind of got lost doing that a little bit today. So I would encourage you to do that. This one from John Krasinski, as well as the earlier one from Brene Brown, up at our Facebook page, uh, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about some advice from Warren Buffett. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're really grateful for those of you who join us, whether it be on the radio or on the podcast, or you can find us online at 1160hope.com. We don't take lightly those of you who listen on a regular basis or once in a while. We're glad to have you here. You can continue the conversation on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Again, find us online at 1160hope.com. Well, want to remind you that during the coronavirus pandemic, we're aware that many businesses have had to close their doors and reduce their hours. But we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if that's you, if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. It's all one word, 1160hope.com dot com slash open for business. Uh, Go there, fill out the brief form, and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. It's totally free. No catch. Go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. So uh, at Pocketworthy, this is a good website, Pocketworthy, it says Warren Buffett's 20 slot rule. 
how to simplify your life and maximize your results. Before getting into it, sometimes I like these types of articles. You get like somebody like Warren Buffett, like, here's a couple things that can help you be better organized, or here's a couple things to think about. And you always leave with one or two nuggets. Do you enjoy articles like this? I don't know. I haven't read it yet. We're going to find out. So I said articles like this, but go ahead. Jump us into it. Tell no, us what I don't know. Called. I don't know what it's like yet, Brian. How would I <laughs> possibly? First off, I want to know, how did you find this? Were you producing getpocket.com? No, I think it came up on like, uh, I think it came up on my home screen, like the browser where a bunch of articles pop up. I think this was one that was uh, that was hiding oh, there. So Interesting. All right. Well, I'll just uh, read a bit of the beginning here. It says Charlie Munger. Settled into a seat in front of the crowd at the University of Southern California. It was 1994, and Munger had spent the last 20 years working alongside Warren Buffett as the two men grew Berkshire Hathaway into a billion-dollar corporation. Today, Munger was delivering a talk to the USC Business School entitled A Lesson on Elementary Worldly Wisdom. About halfway through his presentation, hidden among many fantastic lessons, Munger discussed the strategy that Warren Buffett had used with great success throughout his career. Here it is, Warren Buffett's 20-slot rule, which... I don't think has anything to do with like playing a slot machine 20 times. Nope. Nope. Uh, nope. When Warren lectures at business schools, he says, I could improve your ultimate financial welfare by giving you a ticket with only 20 slots in it so that you had 20 punches representing all the investments that you got to make in a lifetime. And once you'd punched through the card, you couldn't make any more investments at all. He says, under those rules, you really think carefully about what you did and you'd be forced to load up on what you'd really thought about. So you do so much better. Again, this is a concept that seems perfectly obvious to me and to Warren. It seems perfectly obvious, but this is one of the very few business classes in the U.S. where anybody will be saying so. It just isn't the conventional wisdom. To me, it's obvious that the winner has to be very selective. It's been obvious to me since very early in life. I don't know why it's not obvious to very many other people, which is interesting. So the article is going to unpack this a little further. In the last segment, we were just talking about the importance of creativity or curiosity is the word we were using, right? And last right. week, we even we read an article about one of, oh, it was Simon Sinek, right? And he said the, the one thing that he finds all great leaders have in common is curiosity. And so you might think at this point that this wisdom is almost in opposition to the mm-hmm. curiosity that Simon Sinek and John Krasinski were talking about. And I'm wondering which maybe what side of the pendulum there you, you land on. I hadn't thought of them against each other. My guess is they're not black and white on either side of the spectrum. But um, I think curiosity is really important. The best leaders I know, um, while they might have a extreme focus, like in their work life, maybe they're curious about other things, whether it be art or music or cooking or whatever else it might be. So they have this kind of wide breadth where they're not just you know, I'm a business guy and that's what I do all my days when I'm home, when I'm out. Um, that's how I kind of view that curiosity. But yeah, that's an interesting uh, juxtaposition there about this because uh, they're going to call it the underrated importance of selective focus. Uh, this author goes on to say Warren Buffett's 20 slot rule isn't just useful for financial investments. It's in sound approach for time investments as well. In particular, What struck me about Buffett's strategy was his idea of forcing yourself to load up and go all in on an investment. The key point is this. Your odds of success improve when you are forced to direct all of your energy and attention to fewer tasks. If you want to master a skill, truly master it, you have to be selective with your time. You have to ruthlessly trim away good ideas to make room for great ones. You have to focus on a few essential tasks and ignore the distractions. You have to commit to working through 10 years of silence. And it goes on. 
so let me per- turn it back on you. Do you see what they're talking about here as um, different than what we talked about with those last ones? I mean, yeah, they're, they're different articles. They're talking about different things, I would say. I mean, are they at odds with it? No, I don't, I don't think so necessarily. I think they can be at odds. I don't think – I mean, it is interesting that he keeps calling this underrated. I don't think it's underrated at all. I feel like we're in a massive sweep of Seth Godin and Tim Ferriss and minimalism. And I feel like a lot of people are talking now about this sort of like ruthless elimination to trim away good ideas to make room for great ones. I feel like that's actually a really hot topic right now. Okay. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's doing it. <laughs> like a lot of things can be, you can watch 12 minimalism documentaries and still not at all feel like, you know, you're making progress in the area of minimalism. But like I'm listening to a, a sermon series from a church in Portland. Uh, John Mark Comer's doing a series on simplicity that is phenomenal. And he's, you know, making a theological case for why this is so important. So I, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of people are, are talking about it. I don't know if this is something that you are particularly good at. I know I'm not. Um, no. It's been a discipline over the last probably 15, 20 years to try to get better at being selective with what I say yes to or no to. And my wife, honestly, has been a great help in that. She's way better at that than I am. She just has like a she just has a clarity about it. Like, nope, that's not I'm not interested in going down that trail where for me it's like Ooh, but what if or that you know I, I can sometimes the curiosity piece comes i think more naturally to me than some of the like saying no to the good to make room for the best type stuff yeah yeah i'm curious uh you you uh, have me intrigued uh i don't know how far into it you are but what did john mark comer what is the biblical call to simplicity what did it what are some of the things that he's been saying Oh, you you should just go listen to it. I'll him. listen to it. Yeah, yeah. bridgetown.church. Bridgetown.church. You can go and listen to the uh, – it's a three-part series, I think. And you can go okay. and listen to it. It's it's really it's really solid. But by you telling me about it, I don't have to go listen to it, though. <laughs> that's exactly why I'm not telling you, because I know that's what you'll do. <laughs> he says – author- Ian, Ian gave me the 30-second commercial. That's enough. I'm good. Uh, the author here goes on to say – My point here is that everyone is holding a, quote, life punch card. And if we're considering how many things we can master in a lifetime, there aren't many slots on that card. You only get so many punches during your time on this little planet. Unlike financial investments, your 20 life slots are going to get punched whether you like it or not. The time will pass either way. Don't waste your next slot. Think carefully, make a decision, and go all in. Don't just kind of go for it. Go all in. Your final results are merely a reflection of your prior commitment. No, oh, that's an interesting line. Your final results are a reflection of your prior commitment. Uh, I don't feel like this uh, is how I'm wired necessarily to be like, I'm all in, I'm diving in, I'm, I'm diving. And that might be to my detriment. Um, what do you think is the detriment for somebody who's uber like this? Like I'm all in, I'm, I'm super focused. I'm, I'm going for this one thing. Yeah, I think you could probably miss opportunities of interruption. And we've talked before about, you know, almost half of Jesus's miracles happened as a result of an interruption. He was going somewhere else. He had an agenda. He had a destination. And somebody on the side of the road called out for him. Somebody grabbed his robe. Like, I think sometimes you can be maybe so tunneled vision that you miss like a really beautiful opportunity to connect with your kid, or there's an interruption where you recognize somebody at the gas station maybe seems like they're in trouble or, you know I mean? Like there's, and they're not mutually exclusive at all, but I do think sometimes 
you can probably hyper tunnel focus in a way that makes you oblivious to some of the world around you. And it can be a lot about, and again, this is, you know, this isn't necessarily soaked in Christian wisdom, but you can lose perspective, I think, on how to care for the other when your sole purpose is achieving your own goals. And I think scripture says a number of things about how we need to be careful there. Absolutely. Well, we would love to know your opinion. You could do so on our Facebook page, The Common Good uh, Radio Show. We're going to end our show one way or the other. We're going to do it with Interweb Insanity coming up next. Uh, crazy stories from the Internet. going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the Internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good. And that music can only mean once that one thing. It is the end of the show. Something we like to call Interweb Insanity, where our executive producer, Keith Conrad, finds us uh, disturbing, funny, crazy stories from the Internet. We read them sight unseen. And uh, we react to them right along with you. So, Ian, you get the pleasure of going first. Wow. Thank you for that, Brian. This first one about Bolivia, maybe our first Bolivia story. Three boys let Black Widow bite them in hopes of turning into Spider-Man. I mean, wouldn't that turn into <laughs> Black Widow? There is already a character. All right, it doesn't matter. It's well documented how Spider-Man got his superpowers. A plethora of films, cartoons, video games, and comic books have shown Peter Parker develop wall-crawling abilities after being bitten by a radioactive spider. But when three Bolivian boys let a black widow bite them on May 14th, they didn't gain the proportional strength of a spider. They didn't shoot webs, swing from skyscraper to skyscraper. They just got muscle pains, fevers, tremors, and a trip to a couple of hospitals. Oh, man. Health officials told Telemundo that the boys aged 12, 10, and 8 had been prodding the black widow with a stick, hoping it would bite them and give them superpowers. Their mother found them crying and rushed them to a nearby health center. But once the health center realized they couldn't treat the boys on site, they were transferred to a hospital in La Lagua. Look out! Here comes the Spider-Man! Uh, they missed the radioactive part. They needed the radioactive part of the spider, but... Maybe they were also playing the radio. I don't know. That's crazy, man. Indiana. Uh, drunken man passed out on raft to drift seven miles down Indiana River before being rescued near a dam. A sleeping drunken man drifted down a flooded river for more than seven miles before being rescued by DNR conservation officers and a sheriff's deputy. Officers and witnesses say the deputy and uh, COs, Neil Brewington, Jim Shrek, Dennis Taley, and Logan Hodges, very likely saved the man's life since he was passed out in a raft with a bottle of rum on his lap as he approached the dam. Uh, they were the first to locate the man, but were unable to reach him with the throw bags or awaken him despite shouting and blowing a whistle from the bank. Further efforts when the other two launched a boat uh, while Brewington and Shrek set up a tagline across the river and rescue swimmer in hopes of preventing the man from going over the dam. Fortunately, a Crawford deputy, a Crawford County deputy spotted the man who had washed ashore a few miles above the dam. He eventually was able to reach him. Rise and shine. Come on. Come on, get up. Get up. Come on. Come on, it's 6 o'clock. Rise and shine. Rise and shine. Come on. Come. Come on. Well, that sounds fun. <laughs> All right, let's go to Australia. Man who forgot about lottery ticket learns of wind from email. I've always wondered about this. An Australian man said he had forgotten about his lottery ticket until he scrolled through his email and discovered that he had won more than $65,000. <laughs> wow. A Gold Coast Queensland man told the lot officials it hadn't even occurred to him to check the results of the May 25th Lucky Lottery Super Jackpot drawing. Why are you even buying them in the first place then? 
I was just flicking through my emails and saw one from the lot, the man recalled. I thought I'd already checked my tickets, but logged into my account again to double check. I had completely forgotten I'd bought a Lucky Lottery ticket. I got a big surprise when I saw. I was jumping up and down. Lucky I was home alone. I just couldn't believe it. I just like that the lottery thing's called the lot. That's good. Yeah, that's very Aussie, isn't it? Yeah. Next one's out of Arkansas. Uh, thieves break into concession stand at Arkansas Sports Complex. Use it as a personal kitchen. Police in Wynn, Arkansas, are trying to find thieves who broke into a concession stand at the city sports complex. Investigator says the thieves broke a window and stole a bunch of items like drinks and candy. They even treated themselves to a meal by making nachos and popping popcorn. Parks and Recreation employee Zach Morris discovered the damage Sunday morning while he's cleaning up. He said it was devastating. The whole place was looted. We were able to get some high school games in before COVID-19 shut all of it down. Now, with many of the restrictions lifted, teams are starting to come back. That includes the junior high softball team, which can't believe anyone would ransack the concession stand. It's very upsetting, said one of the fathers. It's very sad that someone would do that. Nacho, nacho man. I want to be a nacho man. Okay, we're going to end on a real high note. You ready for this? Yes. It's out of Ohio. Ohio State troopers stop highway traffic for Goose Family Crossing. Ohio State troopers responded to a stretch of highway to stop traffic and rescue a family of stranded geese spotted by a state representative. I guess that's a nice story. Ohio State Representative Araz Ganbari posted a video to Facebook on Monday showing the two Canada geese and six goslings he spotted waddling in the emergency lane on southbound Interstate 75 North Finley. Unfortunately, there was nowhere to go except south, and there were three lanes between them and safety. The Ohio State Highway Patrol responded to the scene, and a trooper directed traffic while another trooper guided the Goose family across the road. Born free, as free as the wind blows, as free as the grass grows. That was a happy one to end on. Yeah, I think, Way that, to was, go. I think that was sweet. Unless you just don't like geese, but I think that was a nice move. That was you, good. Do you like geese? I don't think anybody likes geese. Yeah, but no one, no one likes geese. We used to get, I mean, infested with them at Judson, and they would just take over every spring. It was terrifying. So maybe that makes that a sad story. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> well, we're glad that you joined us today. As always, you can find our stuff on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. All the stuff we've talked about today. Join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.